You're watching A Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Threats from cyber attacks are easily ignored. Our court's too small to worry about that sort of stuff. Hey, we have a great firewall. Our employees change their passwords every three months, just like clockwork. Everyone's been told not to open suspicious email attachments. We're good. Until the morning you fire up your desktop only to find a black screen with the words, pay $50,000 in Bitcoin and we'll send you the codes to unlock your case management system. Cyber experts continue to advise that it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. In this episode, we'll be talking to court professionals, several of whom have gone through the mayhem of a cyber attack on their court. We'll be exploring a number of questions. How did the court respond? What would management have done differently? What could they have done to prevent it? And what advice do they have for the rest of us? So let's join our panel. We're joined today by Kevin Bowling, Court Administrator for the 20th Circuit Court in Ottawa County, Michigan. Kevin is also co-chair of the National Center for State Courts Joint Technology Committee and has helped develop three resource bulletins to assist court managers in handling cyber attacks. Julie Heidi, Court Administrator for the Probate Court in Fayette County, Ohio. Casey Kennedy, Director of the Office of Information Services at the Office of State Court Administration in Austin, Texas. Jorge Basto, Director of IT Programs for the Cherokee County Clerk of Courts in Canton, Georgia. And Montrella Jackson, Court Administrator for the Akron Municipal Court in Akron, Ohio. Julie, Casey, Jorge, and Montrella's courts have all had to deal with cyber attacks. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Let me start off by having you tell us how you learned of the attack. When did it start? How did you find out about it? What did it look like in your court? And describe what you did after you found out your court was under attack. Casey Kennedy? Well, thank you, Peter, for having me here. So for us, it it literally started at three in the morning on a random Thursday or Friday morning at three in the morning and lasted for an entire 30 minutes. And um, we found out about it at about 6.30 in the morning when we first started getting tickets to our help desk saying, I'm getting these weird messages on my desktop. I was notified about it uh, within 15 minutes. And then it was a race for all of us to get to the office as fast as we could to start shutting down our networks. Once we had that happen, and we got everything shut down. We then uh, went through the normal process of investigating and restoring. But just immediately after, it was a matter of getting everything shut down so that we could prevent um, further spread of that attack. Julie Heidi? Well, I was actually in Naples, Florida, visiting my mother. And uh, it started in the early morning hours of that workday. I actually received a phone call from my son who works for a different county office and he's telling me at 8 a.m., mom, the computers are acting funny and something's going on. And by before nine o'clock, my assistant court administrator had called me to notify me of what was going on and that our single IT manager of our county was undergoing a trying to keep it all together. 
it affected every county office, not just our court. So we were we were literally crippled within a few hours. It started at the sheriff's office and that's where it became evident first. So I guess that's why it was probably more quickly detected than maybe other ways. But uh, we we went from there. Um, I was making phone calls the rest of my trip. I couldn't get back to Ohio fast enough. Um, our county commissioners have a what's called Corso, which is a county risk assessment or group, part of one that's in Ohio. And um, they had forensics, forensics analysis people come to check our computers along with the FBI because of Homeland Security and found out all of our computers were compromised countywide. So fortunately, I had them already on order from a grant from the Supreme Court of Ohio on a technology grant. So once those 12 computers arrived for my court, the county seized them and got the uh, county auditor and the treasurer and everybody else up and working first because they couldn't pay bills or payroll or anything. So it was kind of manna from heaven, but uh, we, we worked through it. And then eventually we got, got going about three weeks later. Montrella Jackson. So we learned of our situation on the morning, well, on the morning of January 22nd, 2019, after a long weekend for, it was MLK Day the day before, I got a text from, and it might have been a phone call, because it usually, those are usually early calls. Our Raymond court staff, of course, are the first on site, you know, with them being the, the heart of the court and setting the pace for the day. So um, she called saying that our um, phones were down and our computers. And so we had just replaced our, our phones to the, the internet-based phones, the voiceover internet. And so I'm like, oh gosh, you know, that's one of the challenges with having internet-based phones. So then our challenge was, um, how do we communicate to the public? And, you know, the powers that be for the most part thought it was going to be just a, a day or so. And we had been insured by, um, because we're on the city of Akron's network. And um, so we were thinking it would be resolved. So I remember the previous week though, before the holiday, you know, we had received suspicious emails, you know, they were purporting to be from treasurers of professional associations. I remember even calling some other court administrators or court staff saying, did you send me an email? I got this really weird email. So by the, the 22nd, it was determined that the virus had started locking down the infected computers and um, was demanding payment release. And so the city had decided to shut down 300 of its about 3,500 workstations. Um, but it was determined that it was what they have called the Emotep, E-M-O-T-E-T, malware program, and um, it was a new version that had been tweaked by the hackers and that we were, of course, the first citywide to be the victims of that. Um, and it was it started with a phishing email. Someone clicked on the wrong email. And um, but um, so so that's how ours started. Jorge Basta. So the attack that uh, I survived was in my previous role. I was the uh, CIO for the Judicial Council's uh, the state's administrative office of the courts. We had a team of court professionals that specialists, if you will, that we always uh, worked with the different counties and different training opportunities, everything from reporting, data exchanges, case management, or what have you. We had uh, scheduled a training on a Saturday, uh, June 29th in 2019. Uh, about 7 a.m. in the morning, the team started getting online, getting set up for the training, and they noticed that the, our applications weren't responding. So typical 
IT response. We rebooted some servers and we still couldn't access these things. So I started getting the phone calls uh, just after 7 a.m. Once we started diving more into uh, the folders, we started seeing files on the drive that were unfamiliar. Of course, he said, read me and had uh, some exclamation points and some different formats that we had not noticed. And that's when we started noticing we couldn't open any of the files. Started looking around, checking websites, checking other applications, checking our network shares. And that's when we realized that we had something going on. Didn't want to open any files that we were unfamiliar with. So we kind of held off on that. The investigation and reviewing everything took about 15 to 20 minutes. So I contacted the court. We made sure that uh, we canceled the training. And I remember calling my boss, the state court administrator, and saying, we've, we've got a situation. We have something going on. But to this day, I remember hanging up the phone literally five minutes later saying, hey, give, give me about an hour or two. and We'll, we'll have this cleaned up. And uh, of course, that was not the case. It, it was definitely a lot, lot more far reaching than uh, we had expected. So again, applications, websites, network shares, we started seeing the scope of this intrusion was a lot bigger than we thought. Time went pretty fast as we were going through this. We had a, a couple uh, teams that were helping us look at the response, and it was early Sunday morning that we started seeing some additional unusual activity. Of course, at that time, everything was unusual. So we made the decision within, uh, I'd say, about 20, 24 hours to go ahead and sever our data center from the outside world. We stopped all communications to see if we could mitigate any further damage. And then, of course, the story, as everyone has experienced, it, we, we started seeing really the true scope of what had impacted our environment. Who did you tell and how? Did you contact the media? And who did you call in to help with the investigation? Julie? We did not involve the media. They were the last people we thought of. But uh, our county IT guy was really on top of it. When it started to make itself known in the sheriff's department that early morning, and it was starting to transpose itself into other county offices, he quickly shut everybody down and shut down the network, which were all linked together by emails and things like that. So he shut down the network, trying to salvage everything, immediately called the county commissioners and the Corsa people. Um, somewhere along the way, the, the Homeland Security people came involved, and I'm not sure what that part was. But uh, that's how it kind of started. We didn't care about the media at that point. We were just trying to self-preserve what we had or could, because it was already becoming evident quickly that this could be a major loss. We didn't even know the scope of anything until that, after that point. Casey? Well, for us, immediately once I found out about it, was racing to the office. Uh, the first call was obviously to our state court administrator to let them know, to let him know that we've got a situation going on and that we're racing to the office to figure out what's going on. And, and we're not sure the level of impact or, or where we are just yet because it's so new. One of the things that we did to help investigate is uh, we had already leveraged some of uh, the existing contracts we have through our executive branch IT department for managed security services. So after I spoke to my boss, also while I'm in the car racing to the office, I called the state uh, chief information security officer, who's the head of uh, information security statewide for Texas, to get their recommendation on who from their managed services contract that we need to investigate. Uh, called them and they put us in touch with an investigator so that by the time I got to the office within about an hour, we had uh, our investigation team remotely. And then by the end of the day, they were physically on site uh, doing their work. 
As for the media, um, that is something that I recommend that the IT folk not be involved in. Um, luckily for us, our state court administrator is very good with the media. And because the attack impacted our websites, um, we knew that the media would, would notice that the two high courts and the intermediate appellate courts are kind of missing at the moment. Um, and so it was about two days into the investigation where um, our state court administrator and our PR person released a media release to just let them know that, that we had uh, fallen victim to attack and we're in the middle of recovering. Jorge? That's a very similar uh, type of initial response. I started with the state court administrator who I reported directly to. Um, within, a, within about two hours, we wanted to update the chief justice. So we had a quick call with him uh, very understanding, but, you know, just wanted to give them the high level. And obviously at that point, we didn't know as much as, as we knew few, just a few hours later. But then our immediate call after that was when I started the response plans was with, as Casey mentioned, the, the state assistant, the chief information security officer. Uh, that position reports to the Georgia Technology Authority. And even though we didn't rely on their services, we did use their backbone for our connectivity. So after talking to the state uh, ISO, uh, additional resources were brought in. They had agreements with SecureWorks. So some of the vendors started reaching out to us about coordinating agreements and uh, a response plan for that. Uh, GTA, the, the Georgia Technology Authority, also reached out to the GBI and the FBI, as well as the National Guard. Uh, so our offices, by Monday, when we were all reported back into the office, it was full of a lot of resources uh, to assist and um, it, it was, it was a, a pretty robust response. Uh, I will have to say that one of the best resources that we were able to use was MSISAC, the Multi-State Information Sharing Center, uh, a free resource that was able to, by using the logs that the Georgia Technology Authority was able to provide, they were able to grab just a tremendous number of logs and really recreate what had happened with our attack. So an interesting thing is that our official reports, even to this day, say that uh, because of lack of, of, of information, they were not to, able to determine the initial infection vector. But it was confirmed that malicious activity started on June 27th, that Thursday before we discovered uh, the attack, from an unmanaged endpoint. Um, like with many courts, we had some legacy systems that very small use was, was happening, but some courts, some counties still needed access to it, and we had not turned it off. So one of the Northwest counties, a user was compromised. We don't know if it was through a email phishing or, or some other type of compromise, but that access, which was permitted into our environment, was what was used through a Citrix login. Permitted, accessible, authorized access started, and then the tools started uh, that we were unaware of for additional malicious activity. So was it ransomware, a virus, a worm, phishing, malware? Or was it something else? And if it was ransomware, did you pay the ransom, Casey? So for us, um, we think it was a phishing campaign that someone fell victim to. We did notice through the investigation that they were brute force attacking passwords uh, on an exposed email system. And we were actually able to see again through the investigation and log recreation replay what had happened. So we saw them get an, a regular account. Um, they were using um, exploits unbeknownst to us that Microsoft hadn't yet fixed. 
to elevate that account to an escalated level of privilege. And then from there, they were able to laterally go over to another machine uh, to try and take control of our uh, username and password that's Active Directory, but that kind of infrastructure. Um, and we could, we could see it play out to where our antivirus started catching it when they tried to download ransomware. And they were able to acquire very quickly a variant that has not yet been found by Microsoft or any of the antivirus folks. And we could see them download it. We saw the steps that they had to take to, um, and they had to do some very sophisticated legwork to, to get it through the, the, the screens that we had. But then they wrote a script to push it out to all the machines. And then once that happened at 3.22 in the morning, then all those machines that were connected started encrypting their files. We had a discussion about should we pay the ransom or not. As a technologist, I am 100% always completely against that. Um, and it's mainly because these people are criminals. And if I were a criminal and I told you you're going to have to pay me $2 million, then I would let you pay me $2 million. And then I'd immediately tell you that the money didn't make it. Why don't you try to send me another $2 million and see how much money I can get out of you before I finally give you the code? Or maybe I don't want to give you the code. So yeah, we, we did not pay the ransom. Um, we instead chose to invest the money that we would have paid for a ransom uh, into further security upgrades and, and beefing up our systems. Jorge? It's a very similar uh, type of, of, of activity. Uh, there was an intrusion. We're not sure exactly how that initial point was compromised, but uh, again, it's authorized activity, something that was not going to raise certain flags uh, getting on our network through, through our Citrix environment. However, that authorized uh, login started uh, using deploying some tools that we were unaware of. Uh, and this stuff has happened immediately. This is not over the course of, of weeks or anything. Happened pretty quickly, uh, some credential harvesting tools. So started looking for higher privilege, more escalated privileged access. And they were able to mimic admin type of, of access into our environment. And that's when they started running PowerShell scripts and uh, deploying some additional tools to map our network. Uh, the ransomware that we were hit with was called Defray, D-E-R-F-A-Y 777. Um, again, these are all tools that uh, obviously they're being used by threat actors for malicious activity, but uh, if done correctly by these threat actors, this stuff, a lot of times we don't realize that something malicious is happening, uh, especially if they're using escalated privileges that we have. So it's definitely a ransomware. We had an unwritten policy. We would not pay a ransom. Uh, when this first started, it was pretty much, you know, a, a known factor. But I was amazed over the course of weeks that followed this attack, how many discussions were had regarding that since there was no official written policy uh, a lot of people were, I, I could see, considering this as an option. Uh, obviously, we never got around to paying the ransom, uh, but to a point that uh, was made a little bit earlier, IT stayed out of a lot of the communications with not just the threat actors, but with some of the law enforcement that was looking into this. And that was by design. So um, uh, we were aware that we were not going to be paying a ransom and when we broke out into our teams, but the state definitely took a hard stance on that. And we would not after it was discussed. Kevin, when we talk about a cyber attack, 
Many folks just naturally think of ransomware, but there are quite an array of different types of attacks. Can you describe the major types? Thanks for the great question, Peter. And, and I also appreciate the invitation to join this uh, great group of panelists. I'm just happy that I'm not in their group as being a victim of an attack, at least not yet. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we'll keep it that way. Peter, as you mentioned, I, I co-chair the Joint Technology Committee for NACOM and COSCA and the National Center. And, and we've been very concerned about the rapid growth of attacks against the judicial branch. And for that reason, we published some guidance for court managers in the form of resource bulletins that are available on the JTC website. Um, version one of this uh, that, that both Casey and Jorge were directly involved with uh, was in 2016. And at that time, to answer your question, we relied on FBI descriptions of these different issues. And in our resource bulletin, we described a cybersecurity incident as, and this is a quote from the FBI, the past ongoing or threatened intrusion, disruption, or other event that impairs or is likely to impair the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of electronic information, information systems, services, or networks. So that's sort of a, a large description of, of any cybersecurity incident, but then they describe that it comes in several forms. A cyber attack is an attempt by hackers to damage or destroy a computer network or a system. That's one way, just to destroy it or damage it. A cyber breach is an incident of unauthorized access, viewing, use, or retrieval of sensitive or protected or confidential data. Um, and cyber attacks can be used to gain access um, in an ongoing way uh, to networks or databases that could result in subsequent data breaches. And to drill down a little bit more, you know, oftentimes, as you mentioned, ransomware is one of those common things that our court managers might think of. And in, in that regard, I, I'd suggest folks uh, look at something new, a resource that just came out of the Department of Justice on July 15th of this year. It's a website called stopransomware.gov. Um, new site that's one-stop shopping for anybody that gets hit with ransomware, and it gives you all kinds of resources and quick checklists on what to do and how to do it. So again, that's stopransomware.gov. And they'll tell you right when you go to the website that it's it's not a malicious website, <laughs> that it's a, a real government website. Uh, so malware or malicious software is one of those areas that uh, can include cyber attacks. You might also see viruses. There are denial of service attacks uh, where somebody locks up your system. Um, there are zero day exploits that often are attacks that come through vendors that you connect with. You may not have even done anything and your staff might have done something, but you might be connected with a case management vendor or a document management system vendor or an e-filing vendor. And they're the ones that get hacked and, and then it comes into your system that way. And sometimes they could just be coming from hostile individuals or organizations that could be local or halfway around the world. 
it's just hard to tell where, you know, there, there are a lot of different potential origins for these types of attacks. And that's why in our um, resource bulletins, we tried to provide court managers with several different descriptions uh, if that helps them better understand not only where these attacks come from, what they are, but also, uh, as was mentioned by the other panelists, the different steps that you have to take to begin to repair the damage when it happens. Did you lose data? Did you lose hardware? Does your court's case management system use electronic document management and e-filing? And were those functions affected? Montrella? Um, I would say we did not lose case data just because our case management system is a legacy system and we're in fact in the process of upgrading it or replacing it. Um, so our, our case management system did not go down. It's um, at this point, I think over 30 years old, but we did have to recreate a lot of documents. And I was checking through my notes just to see even three months out, we were still trying to recover information because since the hard drives were infected, they um, actually came in and quarantined our, our equipment. And some of it went to um, the state as part of the investigation. The governor's office did send in the um, Ohio National Guard's four-year-old, at the time it was a four-year-old cyber protection team that had been developed, the FBI also assisted. So some of our equipment wasn't even on site. So just trying to recover the documents, just because a lot of we are still, you know, with 40,000 cases a year, we are still very much paper and staff spend a lot of time recreating documents. Casey? So for us, um, we run uh, case management for the two high courts and the 14 intermediate courts of appeals, in addition to a bunch of other systems. And so for us, um, the case management system was impacted. Our document management system paralleled with it was also impacted. E-filing, uh, we run through a third party and it was not impacted. So it was functioning the entire time, which um, I, I'm an advocate for uh, distributing some of your systems around like that so that you can luck out and that chunks of things will be working and not everything will be down. Um, our case management system, we were able to recover that through backups that we had. We had connected backups that were impacted, but then we had disconnected backups, which were not impacted. And so that was more of a time thing of when I have to bring up 16 individual instances of a case management system and everybody wants it tomorrow. Um, you know, there's a process of bringing it all back and it's, it's not exactly quick. Um, and I'll say if, if everybody remembers, everybody through their career has at least one time where they've had to upgrade a case management system. That that kind of stuff is measured in weeks and not days. And so starting from a, a completely destroyed landscape to something functioning uh, takes a little bit of time. But we were able to recover that. Uh, like Montrella said, for us on the document management side, we did end up losing um, a little bit of documents um, from a couple of different places. Uh, initially, and we were able to pull most of those back. Um, some courts, some of our appellate courts did have a little bit of data loss with documents, but it was predominantly on older cases and a lot of cases that uh, may have ne need to have gone through uh, record retention anyway. Um, but as far as active docket cases, things that are moving through the system, those were all able to be pulled back um, just fine. 
And like I said, um, we, we actually used our e-filing system to recreate a bunch of stuff. Uh, we were able to pull from website backups, other back, like all these different systems. It was amazing to be able to see, um, you know, go to a meeting with the team and say, well, we're missing this piece of data and someone pipe up and say, hey, well, there's a copy of it over here. It's used for something different, but we can take that data and recreate something that we can use uh, in our systems over here. Now, I've heard some court administrators say that they think that their court is just too small for cyber criminals to be concerned about. Do you agree with that assessment, Kevin? Peter, as we talked earlier, I, I think you know my, my thoughts. The, the myth that size matters is just that. It's a myth. And as court managers, I think we have to start taking cybersecurity more seriously, regardless of the size of our jurisdiction. I mean, just on the panelists that we have here that have been attacked, we've got statewide systems and individual jurisdictions. And they're sometimes targeted attacks, sometimes are just opportunistic, you know, based on system vulnerabilities like Jorge was just describing. And, you know, it allows some of these attacks to happen. But even if we're in a small jurisdiction and we've got certain protections in place, as I mentioned earlier, we could be connected through a larger vendor. And if we've got a CMS vendor or a document management system vendor or jury or e-filing or some kind of court recording system vendor that's set up, those essential functions could be attacked and there could be uh, ransomware or viruses or other things that would come into our system that way. So I don't think we should ever assume because I'm in a small court that I'm gonna be safe from a cyber attack. Casey? And I would completely agree with what Kevin said. And, and to build on that, one of the things that we saw was that some of the investigative work that our investigators did pointed to not people that are, you know, just in their basement mad at the Texas courts that we, that they were able to kind of spot that this is just part of the larger effort that we're getting with other countries that like to get involved with, with the U.S. to say that the system and government generally doesn't work. So we've, we saw that um, that happened with us. And then we had another state agency in the executive branch get attacked in, with mostly the same MO exactly one week after we did. And we saw municipalities get attacked, you know, like a couple months previous to us. And so it's, it's just part of the thing that, um, that these people that are doing this, their main care is that you're part of government and part of an established system of democracy and, you know, the three branches of government and let's take it all down and show that none of it works. And so um, I agree with Kevin, size doesn't matter. Small courts help uh, preserve democracy just as much as the big courts do. And so take them down as well. So uh, I, I think if, if you, you're going, going along saying, well, they're not going to attack us because we're small, please do not taunt them. Don't give them a challenge. What's the one takeaway that you would like clerks and court administrators around the country to come away with from this podcast episode? Kevin? Don't wait to be the next victim of a cyber attack. Do something. There are a lot of things that we've talked about here today that you could do. There are great lessons to be learned from the other panelists that have been through this. I mentioned some of the JTC resource bulletins that you can go to if you're not sure where to begin. There's a taking action guide that's built in there and a discussion guide 
that can be your checklist for action. So I just encourage folks to do something. Montrella? My response would be similar. You know, I put hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. The key is to prepare and assume it's going to happen. That's the only way you're going to have the most effective response because it is very difficult to make decisions on multiple issues when you're faced with something of the nature of the cyber attacks that we've mentioned today. So um, that's what I would share. Jorge? Uh, the fact that it's everybody's job, uh, don't look at cyber protections as an IT only role. Um, I've been on both sides, I've worked with both sides and, and uh, it's almost more threatening from the operations side. You can't depend solely on IT. IT is gonna tell you they don't have enough funding, they don't have enough resources. Uh, there's too many instances. So it, it really getting everybody aware of these situations um, as and part of the security team uh, is, is really what I think court administrators and everybody else can, can look at, not just focusing on the IT component. Julie? I would say just keep talking about it. Talk to your staff, talk to your judge, talk to your IT guy. Everybody on my staff, including my judge, is the weakest link. They're, we're all human. And so I have to continually to have the conversation. They kind of think, or I think that some of them have gotten complacent to think that, you know, this can't happen. We've been through the gauntlet, but it can happen any day, folks. And I continually remind them of that. Um, so continuing to talk about it and um, save your old dead computers in a closet, it's a good thing. Um, just prepare. It, it's coming again. I want to thank Kevin Bowling, Montrella Jackson, Jorge Basto, Julie Heidi, and Casey Kennedy for relating their experiences and their advice about this vitally important topic. Cyber threats are real, and we need to guard against them now. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You are the crucial component in fighting against cyber threats. It is your skill and persistence that keeps courts safe. Thank you. Join us in October for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. 
They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.